Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or in a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. And this is part two of a two-part mini-series focusing on BWV 150, the cantata Nach dir Herr verlanget mich. If you didn't listen to last week's episode yet, I encourage you to go back there and listen to it. In that episode, we looked at the first four movements of this cantata. And now let's jump in to the fifth movement. Bach did prefer the number seven, or like an odd number for cantatas, so that he could have like a middle movement. We discussed that very middle movement last time with a leite mich dramatic ascent stepwise. Now we're on the home stretch here because we are on movements five and six and seven. And the last movement is something else entirely, but it is a it is a chorus, but it has a different musical structure, and we'll talk about that at the end of this episode. We move on to number five. Cedars must before the tempest often suffer much torment, and are often uprooted. Entrust to God both thought and deed. Do not heed what howls against you, for his word teaches us quite otherwise. I can't possibly think of a more fitting musical accompaniment to those words than what Bach used, and it's actually not really fair to call it an accompaniment, because I think what's happening here, I think it's fair to say, that the storm is the wild, fast cello notes that we hear at the beginning in the continuo. And then standing firm, like cedars must do in a storm, standing firm through that are the singers. Singing these solid notes, these solid tones in the middle. And they are waving Hmm. around and being batted around. And and the last phrase, they, they are disjointed enough to be in a little bit of counterpoint. But then... On the last note, they all come together on one pitch, so they are not uprooted. And just like the rest of the cantata, it's continuous through composed, nice and short. The use of the bassoon gives some nice contrast. Again, not exactly like the continual part, but quite different actually in texture. At the beginning, it's just got some eighth notes while the continuo is much faster. We have 16th notes of this speed. And the bassoon sort of has these more plodding bum 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 eighth notes. Until the end, when their rolls are reversed and the bassoon gets one last little word in at the end this is such a gorgeous movement it also features a trio 
which Bach didn't do very often. So that's a nice little surprise as well. Missing a soprano part, so there's nothing too high and prominent here. Just nice close writing of the bass, tenor, and alto parts together. And there is one moment actually where those strong trees are shaken this in this part of the singers that is and that is on vide bellet and the translation that's used here is like pushed or barked or howled against you achtet nicht yeah achtet nicht was vide bellet like an annoying yeah something that's annoyingly howling that's interesting yeah and they do they do shake there But you get that interruption on the word nicht. Yeah, nicht gets repeated as a short note. Nicht. 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 Oh, he always does that, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. These are just tropes you start looking for in Bach. <laughs> we find it all over the place, don't we? It's in Jesu meine Freude. It's in Aus Liebe. It's in the soprano aria, Aus Liebe, at the, at the middle of St. Matthew Passion. I just love the the way and the way that this dovetails with movement six is cool too because five and six are in D major which is the relative major of B minor but everything else one two three four and seven are all in B minor so this is our like momentary reprieve from B minor and of course that's for a reason Bach didn't just do that to create variety in the music he did that to set the text it is always about the text for Bach the reason why he set these I think these are just a little bit more hopeful than the others. I think so. There is a nice conclusion in the text at the end of the seventh part, which we will discuss. But you're right. Going on to number six, the words are, Mine eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. You know, Alex, it does make me think that the most famous work in B minor that Bach ever did, also his longest choral work, of course, that's the Mass in B minor. It ends in D major. Right. But it might just be for the practical reason that... In order to include the trumpets and timpani on that glorious last movement, it had to be in that key. And it, he didn't really maybe even think of that as being different because they are relative to each other. That's the relationship in music theory that is so common in classical music. A given minor key like this one, B minor, and its relative major, D major, they are so linked that they are almost thought of the same, as part of the same grouping. Yeah. So that sixth part, the chorus, begins right away in a moving clip. Yeah, and it, even though it's in 6-8 time, and the other one is in 3-4, it still like has a similar sounding harmonic rhythm, like the, the harmonies change around the same amount of time. Hmm, they, yeah, they are. Bach repeats the word stets always in order to firmly nail home that point on strong beats. Oh, yeah. Always, always, always towards the Lord. The alternation between the violins and while the bassoon is going as well. It is a lot like the Symphonia to Gotteszeit.
It's such an unusual thing. He only does it in his early works. You get these alternating figures that, when combined together, create unbroken 16th notes. But because they're juxtaposed or like offset, I mean, like you can hear the, the held out note in the background. And there's also a little bassoon texture happening where the bassoon is playing all of the fast notes in just a sort of written out slow trill like da, 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 thing happening mm-hmm. it's a very strange musical texture i love it it's, it's a really interesting texture and it's that my eyes are to- ever toward the lord always toward the lord set toward him that is what bach is setting with that just focused single high violin note that both violins are just always always approaching that bum, 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 always just hitting that target and just staying at that and the illusion of that note being up there, even though it's actually alternating between the two instruments. He's also like not afraid to give the instrumental part the third of the chord at the ends of cadences in this particular movement. Um, and the next, as we'll see at the end. But it's just, he's just not, he doesn't worry about that as much in this. I find that kind of interesting. Yeah, do you think that later in his life, he just always made sure that the chords were written out more ba- in a balanced way between the notes chosen in the last chords? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's always covered in a continuo keyboard yeah. instrument, so it's not like it's a problem. There's not a lot of text here. The rest of it is just... He shall pluck my feet out of the net, but he really does a lot with this. Yeah. He's finished the text by bar 20, but he's not done. He's not content. He then writes a fugue section on that text. And the flurry of trying to escape the net seems like it's being evoked here and then here is the ending which i think on my first listen kind of just struck me as what in the world is this so now we're really trying to get out of the net with this truly remarkable sequential harmonic thing that's going on here. It's so nice he does it twice. What I think is... uh, so remarkable is that it's not that it's just this little mini sequence of a pattern going down 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 a couple steps here like four steps in a row it's that those notes are whole steps so we have these strange notes that are just underneath the note they're going to but they're on the beats they're on the strong beats that's what makes it so strange the dissonant chord is on the strong beat that's part of it because if it wasn't it would be a lot more ordinary
but it's also the fact that in this pattern, all of those notes are whole steps from each other, which is weird. There's only one place in the scale which has seven notes in it. There's only one place that has four whole steps in a row like that. It happens in the major and the minor scales. It happens in all the scales, because if you know your musical scales, in like major and minor harmony, you've got seven pitches before you repeat. When you get to the eighth one, it's the same as the first one. In that string of seven pitches, there are four in a row that are whole steps and not half. And it's on those four that Bar has chosen to do this strange pattern. And it's only because he chose those four that this works. Going to C sharp via B sharp, going to B via A sharp, and so on. And so you've got C sharp, B, A, G. It's set tightly in this constrained place, the only place it could be. It's pushed stronger by being on the beat. Bach repeats it again right away to show it again. It's truly colorfully strange harmonic moment that I think only a composer like Bach, as harmonically adventurous as Bach, would dare to do, especially that young, yeah. because it's pretty weird. It's amazing. It's an amazing moment. Also, there is one difference between the two iterations of that. It's kind of subtle, but it's just that the bassoon goes down an octave in the second one. But everything mm -hmm. else stays the same. Sure enough. You have to admire that that experimental thinking of Bach changing just a small thing, maybe even just for himself, so that when it got performed, he was thinking in the back of his head, ah, but I did the bassoon an octave lower here. What does that particular color sound like? Now I know. Yeah. And that's kind of a thing that us composers are always doing behind everyone's back is just making these tiny little decisions to think, well, which one of those two did I like a little better? Like going to the optometrist and getting those those lens prescriptions made. Is one slightly better than two? And maybe it's okay that they're just both different in this case, but maybe he actually just wanted to see which one he liked better. So now we have the final choral movement. So I'm looking at Bach's manuscript. It says tutti, that means like all the singers are going to sing. And then it says chiacona, the Italian word for chacon, chacon, which is the French version of the word. That right there kind of makes this remarkable because of what it is and what it means. And we've covered a chacon or two on this podcast. Yeah. A roughly equivalent musical form and structure is passacaglia, and it is a repeated bass motif over which a bunch of different other varieties of things on top happen. And remarkably, Bach did not write very many chacons. Pasacalias, and the ones he did write are usually pretty famous, like the organ Pasacalia and Fugue in C minor, or the Crucifixus movement of the Mass in B minor, which is lifted from a cantata also, or that famous violin solo, Chacon, from the Partita. Yes, but none of them have this 
musical texture, which is a continuo and choir, but traded off with little instrumental bits of the shikun, which are between two violins and a bassoon, which are so weird and really cool. Yeah. Sometimes the bassoon just doubles the continuo, but other times it's like doing a completely separate interesting thing. It is treated like in the family with the two violins. And also, Alex, this one's not famous, I would say. I mean, I'd, I'd never heard of this until I got to the end of listening to this cantata. Right, but it even has some, like, very violin-focused moments in it. You know what I mean? Like, it, mm-hmm. some stuff that rivals some of the stuff from the violin partita, the Chacon, the famous one. But it's way shorter, and there's not a lot of it. But those little moments that we get are great. It's not as technically advanced as that, but it is. it does have some pretty fast stuff in it. And it's always according to its text, which, which is when it occurs. And that text is... All my days of suffering are ended by God in gladness. The Christians on the thorny paths are led by heaven's power and blessing. If God remains my faithful jewel, I shall ignore human affliction. Christ, who stands by us, helps me daily win the battle. And it's always the text, and you know what happens? There's a shikun in B minor, but he alters it to like go up to the D major at some points. You might have noticed this listener if you're listening to the harmony. And when does he do it? On the word Freude, gladness. And that's when you get these little these little gestures of joy in the soprano and altos, this thing that gets repeated in the violins. But then it goes back down to minor a little bit later, which I think is interesting. And right there in that moment, Alex, the remarkable thing that I think is a young Bach thing that I don't think he did later is that those patterns that the two upper voice parts have, first it's soprano and alto, and then it is the two violins. Their pattern for three or four bars stays the same. Under that, the chacon moves, and it doesn't necessarily fit the harmonic scheme. Bach does not change the top part to match the bottom. The top part just stays on that that joyful repeating dance thing that's happening up there. Yeah, that's that is really cool. And, and that's I love that moment. Especially that second bar of it of the E on the bottom. Yeah, that's actually my favorite, I think, measure, even though there's so much other cool stuff happening later. I just love that how it stays there. That's pretty remarkable. It's it's almost modern in harmony and pop harmony this kind of thing happens all the time because something might just be staying while something else is playing is playing through a cycle of chords yeah a melodic lick repeats while while the chords progress in their loop and as long as you stay within like a system of a scale like the seven notes of a diatonic scale it's not like it's going to sound horrible if you clash with the bass note and chord and that's exactly what happens here is it does still kind of work but it produces unusual dissonances with the with the bottom note in the Baroque style that it's in. But it's it's a type of pedal point. One thing is staying, another thing is moving. But it's kind of reverse pedal point because the bass is moving and the pattern above is staying. And the result is so just simply beautiful. Just these sixths, parallel sixths in the soprano and alto or thirds when it gets to the violin. Just stationary, but like sort of pulsating. Yeah, and contrast that with the next little violin interlude that happens after the 
the next couple lines of text in the soprano and alto, and that is just to simply a broken up arpeggio that matches each chord under it. I'm looking at measure 33. Yeah. And that's cool, but to me, it's less interesting. Definitely. You know? And the text that happened right before that was Christian auf den Dornenwegen, Christians on the thorny paths. Of course, that word, thorny paths, that's where the weird thing happens. Oh, yeah. He brings us from the Freude, the gladness before, into, yeah, some real thorny notes. And really just that one note of the soprano on that A sharp where we're supposed to go up but then instead go down by a half step surprisingly to the a natural that's remarkable yeah i mean it's literally on the word thorn yeah so that's the musical thorn and then the text drives another thorny moment later too after i shall ignore human affliction if god remains my faithful jewel and on that word we also get man's affliction man's strife it's the bass part that sings it, the bass singer in this recording. The violins pick up and with a bassoon suddenly become very active and agitated. But then at Christ who stands by us, after a wonderful sort of double suspension there, that downbeat we're back to being sort of happier helps me daily win the battle even though we're in a minor key technically here we're kind of powering towards the end and the word battle striking is usually extended it is and the pattern that goes with it including in the violins at bar 78 9 80 it's another thing where it's like this part just stayed and this one's even stranger because at 77 you got B minor, everything's fine. Mm. B minor triads are being arpeggiated in the violins and the bassoon. It is oh, B minor. Oh yeah, yeah, this part's cool. But then on bar 78, the bass note changes, but everything else, B minor still. It's, that's not, that does not happen in harmony of this time period. It just sure doesn't. <laughs> I guess it, it's legal because you could just call it the entire bar of that bottom note of that bar, a passing tone to the next thing, but it's not what it sounds like. It just sounds, no, like, it sounds like jazz harmony where like there's a chord and then an entirely different bass note. That's look at the figured bass. It says in that measure, and this is in the this is in the manuscript. It says nine seven. So yeah, there's a C sharp on the bottom, but we're asked to play a B and a D above it. A D being a minor ninth above C sharp. Yeah, that's just crazy. It's it's wild. But but Alex, if you saw a nine seven in the figures, uh, and you were a person who played Baroque continuo, that in itself would not be the weird thing because you just assume that later in the bar, as that bass note stayed the same, later in the bar you'd see an eight six. In other words, the dissonant and crunchy nine and seven would resolve downwards appropriately, like it's supposed to, to an eight and a six, which are consonant and smooth and nice. But it doesn't. Right. In this it case, it, the whole bar is weird. It moves on to a less weird bar afterwards, but still. But the notes, yeah, the less weird bar afterwards has the eight six, but it's no, it should be noted that that's not the same notes as if it would, as if the eight six was in 
in the weird bar that we're talking about. And all that is is just like the static B minor again, staying put. Yep. So it is it is actually a pedal point, as you said. And what this reminds me the most of is some of those very funky figured bass markings that we got at the beginning of the Edgentera Pox movement of the Mass and B minor. We had some interesting pedal point happening, and it caused some weird markings in the figured bass. But you do kind of wonder, I mean, late middle and late Bach has refined beauty in it. And some of the aria, well, I mean, some of the instrumental stuff is just on another level of complexity. Some of the aria melodies are some of the most beautiful ever. But in the early Bach, you get this kind of stuff, and you don't see this later. There's less of it to be had, just volume-wise. Yeah, when, when we do get a chance to see it, it's just sort of got a real magic to it. And this is an underrated Pasacalia. I mean, all the other ones are famous. This one somehow is not a famous one. And I find that to be very disappointing because this is arguably one of the best ones. I mean, actually, he didn't write very many, so it's hard to say what's the best. This isn't that long, and it stands at the end of a cantata, so maybe that's the thing. But it it's a great conclusion to this cantata because if this cantata is characterized by one thing, in my mind, it's these like really interesting musical moments that are weird and unusual. Then there's so many of them. A lot of times on this podcast, we find one really interesting moment within a large work there might be a lot, but for us, one sticks out. But in this, in these older ones by Bach, and in this one especially, there's way more just volume of very remarkable things that he's doing in texture and the music and things like that. And so this movement at the end of this cantata is perfect because it's a fireworks finale of the entire thing with all these special effects that he's pulling here. Just to, to experience this cantata and all of its twists and turns, surprising at every turn, something around the corner it's, it's almost like a, a labyrinth you know where a puzzle every little challenge around the corner is new a strange like old renaissance section occurring and then a bizarre harmonic sequence and then sudden violent violin notes and then at the end a shakun a, a rare instance of a shakun by Bach it's just the whole thing is one big weird amazing labyrinth and at the end of the labyrinth what do we get We get what sounds like almost an open fifth final note. Now, it's not because the violin, too, has that third, and it's a Picardy third, so it's raised, so it's a major chord. And it's in the continuo as well, as far as in the chordal instrument continuo. We hear it in the organ part, but it's still kind of soft. What's remarkable is that the voices, as we hinted at earlier, here they don't land on that third. None of them do. There's three Bs and one F sharp, but no D sharps here on this final chord. It's an interesting color that that D sharp is so high up there. Right, it's a range thing. It's a little bit more like a natural acoustic, it's sort of like a physics thing at that point, sort of like the harmonic series, in that from that bottom note, it really does sound like the notes stacked above in the in the arrangement that Bach voiced them above sound a lot like the natural harmonic series that's vibrating from that bottom note. So it's just very pure in tone. It is, more so than a normally structured final chord in which you'd have the third be in the middle of the range, which would be in the tenor or the alto, which gives it like a fuller, lower sound. But this is kind of a high, pure sound, especially since the bass instruments are all doubling the B. In fact, the B is tripled 
in the bottom, if you think about it. Got that big low bassoon too. You have a big low B in the violones. In the bassoon, he specifically puts the low B, which means it matches the violone, which is really interesting. So you got a huge low B, the next B up, which is in the bass staff, which is being sung by the bass singers and is being played by a cello. And probably organ pedals are covering those low two, but those are softer usually. Then up from that is a tenor B. Those are three Bs, but the lowest ones were the strongest. That's why this is so hollow sounding and pure and weird. The next is an alto F sharp. That's a fifth away. Soprano B. Okay. Now we still don't have a third yet. This is a really remarkable chord if we think about it. Then finally, the top two are the two violins. D sharp there. It finally is, but it's a high one. And then F sharp, not a B on the top. Is the first like six notes in the harmonic series of the of a really low B. Yeah, no wonder it sounds so hollow and pure. Yeah, and it's pretty stark and kind of colder than like a nice big full chord with a bunch of notes in the middle range, which would be more colorful. I can think of like 20th century composers, spectralist composers like uh, Griset and stuff like that doing things like this with the spectral quality of these of these chords, like r- looking really closely on how these harmonics interact when they compose. And that's like 20th century stuff. And here Bach is, is he consciously thinking about the harmonic series or does he just have a innate understanding either way? I think it's probably kind of subconscious for him. Yeah. I can't imagine the science of it would like be that common. I don't know. I could be wrong. I, I think if you read those treatises, they, they understood, they understood that stuff. They, they just don't, I mean, in the Renaissance, they were exploring it, you know? And I mean, even the ancient Greeks, the ancient Greeks knew that stuff. It's just that it wasn't in the terminology that was found by monks later and then a lot of t- a lot of those monks kind of got it wrong and then they had to refigure it out and all this it's a, it's a fascinating subject I, I think we can give Bach more credit here than just like he intuited this because he did intuit it but I think we can give him more credit I think he's a very learned person I bet he understood the harmonic series at least to the knowledge that they would have understood it in the day So Alex, that brings us to the end of this truly wild cantata. Let's go back and have one more listen to the three moments from the last three movements in this cantata. First, let's hear the ending of the cedars movement. Cedars must before the tempest suffer much torment. Next, we'll hear the strange beauty of the ending of the chorus. Mine eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. And finally, let's hear the joyful section of the closing shakun. We hope you've enjoyed and gotten a lot out of this two-part retrospective on BWV 150. 
Nach dir Herr verlanget mich. Please check out, if you haven't already, the wonderful recording and video done by the Netherlands Bach Society on this cantata. And of course, they have a bunch of other great stuff on their YouTube channel as they work on completing all of Bach's output through their All of Bach program. The videography of this particular cantata is a great example of the quality that they produce. For example, Alex, on that beautiful Leite Mich moment from the fourth movement of this cantata, the camera strafes sideways and follows the bass, then tenor, then alto, then soprano. As that musical line elides between them and smoothly flows upward. Alex, what will our next episode be about? We'll be taking a look at the Well-Tempered Clavier again, at a recently published video from the Netherlands Bach Society, Well-Tempered Clavier Book 2, Prelude and Fugue Number 23 in B Major, BWV 892. Until next time, enjoy those moments. Thank you.